Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. It's that time of year. Cash the ticket. Jim Costa with Mike Valeni. We shift the focus from football to college hoops, getting us ready for the tournament where we're going to break down all the matchups and have an eye on some future plays too. Search Cash the Ticket on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a good idea. Have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. Welcome back to At Your Service. Brad Young in with you this evening until 10 o'clock. Thanks for staying up late with us. We have a lot of fun here on At Your Service, and I hope you are enjoying the show. Uh, during, during the break, I was talking to Matt Pajeski, and and uh, uh, Matt, you had, a, you had a run-in with a bat, because I talked about my run-in with a possum, but you had a run-in with a bat, didn't you? Yeah, this was a couple years ago at my uh, student dorm at Webster University. There was a bat inside my apartment, and, man, I, I didn't know how to handle it. I wasn't sure, you know, like, is this like a spider situation? I, I got to take care of it myself, or is this a situation where I got to call somebody? Ultimately, I called my uh, my RA, and uh, she says, you can't stay there. <laughs> you need to you need to vacate the premises. <laughs> oh, and, uh, my goodness, because we'll it's animal. a bat. Yeah, and uh, looking back at it now, I'm, I'm kind of glad I left. The last thing I want is, is rabies yep. at, at school. So. They, well, they do. They they do carry uh, carry a lot of rabies, so you got to be careful. But speaking of bats, and here's the reason why I, I brought that up. And and last week, by the way, last week I talked about uh, snakes, and uh, we got a lot of responses to that. Now I'm talking about possums and bats, so I'm seeing a theme here on on at your service. But speaking of bats, the official line about COVID, the official line is that that there was uh, some sort of a bat that was available in what's called the wet market in Wuhan, China. That's where they sell uh, dead animals that still have their blood in them. And apparently, according to the prevailing theory, uh, that a bat was infected with a coronavirus, and that's how we got the global pandemic. But there's there's the, the House of Representatives right now, they're opening up an investigation announced on Monday uh, that they are the, this committee is demanding that the Biden administration actually provide them with information regarding the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. And don't you want to know where COVID came from? Because it's interesting that scientifically there's been nothing. Every other coronavirus that we've dealt with in the past can always be traced to a, to a natural origin. This one so far, even though it's gotten a lot of scrutiny, nothing, no explanation. So don't you want to find out how this got started? And I know that the, the moment I first heard about COVID, January of 2020, I said to my wife, this thing's in Wuhan. I know there's a Wuhan Institute of Virology. Don't ask me why I knew about it then, but I did. And I said, it's got to come from there. It's got to come from there. And and when this theory came out, 
keep in mind that the Biden administration squelched and prevented social media from talking about this being a a man-made virus that leaked out of the lab. They stopped that. They prevented that from being discussed on social media. And how interesting that the World Health Organization has has announced, previously announced their intent to investigate the origins of COVID. But guess what? China has blocked the World Health Organization, and now it will not be investigated. How interesting is that? But the best analysis that I've heard about the origins of COVID-19 comes from none other than comedian John Stewart. There's, there's a chance that this was created in a lab. There's an investigation. A chance? Well, but, I, so, I, 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 oh my if God. there's evidence, I'd love to hear it. There's I don't a know. novel respiratory coronavirus overtaking Wuhan, China. What do we do? Oh, you know who we could ask? The Wuhan novel respiratory coronavirus lab. The disease is the same name as the lab. That's just, that's just a little too weird, don't you think? And then they ask those scientists, they're like, how did this... So wait a minute, you work at the Wuhan Respiratory Coronavirus Lab. How did this happen? And they're like, mm, a pangolin kissed a turtle. <laughs> and you're like, no. I, you, you, the wait, name wait, of your lab... Wait. If you look at the name, look at the name. Can I... Let me see your business card. Show me your business card. Oh, I work at the coronavirus lab in Wuhan. Oh, because there's a coronavirus loose in Wuhan. How did that happen? Maybe a bat flew into the cloaca of a turkey and then it sneezed into my chili and now we all have coronavirus. Like, come on. Okay, wait, okay, a, wait, okay. A, wait a second. Wait a what about second. this? What about wait this? Listen to this. Wait a second. All right. John. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. There's been an outbreak of chocolatey goodness near Hershey, Pennsylvania. What do you think happened? Like, oh, I don't know. Maybe a steam shovel made it with a cocoa bean. Or it's the chocolate factory. Maybe that's it. That could be. That could be. That is undoubtedly the best analysis that we could have of the origination of the coronavirus is the chocolatey goodness Hershey, Pennsylvania metaphor. And, and, and listen, I promise you tomorrow, you're going to use that material from Jon Stewart tomorrow. You're going to use it. And don't forget, you heard it right here on Camel X. Hey, we're going to take a break. Uh, but earlier in the show, we were talking about balloons in the upper atmosphere. But Coming up after this break, we're going to go way beyond that to talk about comets and asteroids and moons with our own uh, friend of the show, astrophysicist Dr. Ryan Ogliori, next here on CamelX. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep Mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. 
Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. All the news and all that matters to you. The voice of St. Louis, KMOX. Welcome back to CamelX. Uh, every day we read more and more about discoveries in our solar system and in, uh, in the Milky Way galaxy. And so to talk about some of these recent discoveries, I reached out to a friend of the show, astrophysicist Dr. Ryan Ogliori. Uh, he's an assistant professor of physics at Washington University. Uh, Dr. Ogliori, great to talk to you again. Great. Thank you for having me. Oh, and it's been too long, and I'm sorry. I need to have you on more often because you do such a great job for breaking down these complex uh, astrophysics questions, and you break them down so simply that even I can understand it. So I I always appreciate it when you make yourself available. Uh, An asteroid was recently spotted in space just before it hit the Earth. Uh, I believe it was in Europe. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this is only the third time in history that we've seen an asteroid in space, saw the fireball, the light trail as it comes down through our atmosphere, and then picked up pieces of asteroid, that asteroid on the ground. Um, so the other two happened in uh, kind of rural sub-Saharan Africa that are very hard to get to, and it's a huge effort to go out there and recover those meteorites. This one landed in Normandy in France, and it was spotted uh, in a, by an astronomer, astronomer in Budapest, using a relatively small telescope. It had a mirror about two feet across, which is much smaller than, you know, like the James Webb Space Telescope or the big telescopes in Hawaii. Um, so this is very exciting. They just found the meteorite um, on Wednesday, I believe, yesterday. So this is a new thing. I'm excited about it because it has a very unusual orbit compared to other meteorites we might find. So it might be an unusual meteorite type, and we'll know that pretty soon. Well, do you foresee that meteorites will be able, or meteors, of course, it's not a meteorite till it hits, but do you think that, that meteors will be spotted more often because of the increased focus on looking into outer space and to see and to track those objects that are heading towards the Earth? Yeah, there's a, there's a focused effort on that. And like one of the, cool, the ironies of this meteorite fall is that it occurred when we just talked about exactly 10 years after this enormous uh, meteorite event in Russia called Chelyabinsk. It was um, exactly 10 years ago, and that one actually caused damage. So, like, it shook down um, a building. It broke glass on windows. People got a little bit hurt. So it was a real wake-up call for us as a species that we need to look for these things. And um, you, don't find, you don't find them accidentally. They're small. They're dark. They're close to the sun. So you really need dedicated observatories and just like this one proved it doesn't have to be a giant telescope you just have to have somebody dedicated looking mm. for these things and this person in budapest is actually super good at it and has found multiple um, near-earth asteroids that have come close to hitting the earth or have hit the earth in the last couple of years well you, you mentioned that asteroid that uh that came in over chilobinsk just uh recently. But I'm also thinking about the, I think it was called the Tunguska event over Russia in 1908, where an asteroid exploded over Russia. It flattened, I believe, 
80 million trees over an area of 830 square miles. So these asteroids can pack a major punch when they enter our atmosphere. They can. And that that one's like, you know, my unicorn. That is such an interesting event because the amount of power that they can deliver depends on so many things, like how steep it's coming through the atmosphere, what it's made of, and these things can combine in different ways. And Tunguska is um, an enormous event, um, and we don't really know what caused it. Like, this relatively small event, people went out and found a meteorite, no big deal, no big deal at all. But Tunguska, it's like it totally evaporated. There is almost nothing. Mm-hmm. I haven't found convincing evidence that anything survived. And so they can cause a lot of damage. It's directed energy towards the ground. Uh, and if they happen to land somewhere where there's a lot of people, there can be uh, bad things that happen for oh, sure. For sure. Now, now <laughs> asteroids have been hitting the Earth as, as long as the Earth has been here. Uh, but in the modern era, uh, Dr. Ogliori, what can scientists learn from recovering asteroids? Yeah, so that's kind of my kind of main business. And we have, you know, samples of the solar system um, really tell us with very, very high precision about the solar system's history. So the things that we we can use uh, telescopes for to look at kind of the broad current solar system, we can see everything that's going on. But if we do laboratory analyses of these rocks that we have in hand, we can know precisely to like a thousand years events that happened four and a half billion years ago. So that's the real um, benefit of having an actual sample in hand from space is that incredible precision that we can use with laboratory instruments like the type I have in my lab here at WashU. Hmm. We're, we're talking to astrophysicist Dr. Ryan Ogliori from Washington University. And we also heard last week about something called a green comet. I've never heard of this before until last week. What on earth, I guess I shouldn't say on earth, what in the world is a green comet? Yeah, so this is Comet uh, ZTF. I tried to look at it. It was like, it was uh, brightest when the moon was full, which made it very hard to see. So I didn't actually get to see it. I should have gone out somewhere where there isn't so much light pollution, but um, it's a be- comets are fantastic. So comets are my favorite astronomical objects. Um, And this one was green, um, probably because it's very cool why it's green. It's probably coming from organic Kryptonite, right? It's got got kryptonite (laughs) in it. Is that why it's green? It's definitely got, well, it's probably got krypton gas. (laughs) Kryptonite's a funny word because it implies it's a a mineral made of krypton gas, which is impossible. But um, possibly kryptonite, but definitely um, (laughs) Organ- like some kind of organic carbon on the surface of the comet was likely uh, evaporated when this thing came close to the sun for the first time in 50,000 years. Um, it's a, a color we see sometimes. It's very interesting to see it um, so spectacularly in this Oort cloud comet. So this is a really neat one. These comets surprise us. We don't know when, when and where they're coming, but this is a, a especially cool one. It also had three different tails, which is unusual for a comet. It had two dust tails. One seemed to be pointing the wrong direction. It was a very cool-looking comet. And uh, so these come, you know, a few times a year. Sometimes they get they get relatively bright like this one. Well, as I read about this green comet, uh, Ryan, I, I read that it originated from outside of our solar system. First of all, how do astrophysicists like you know that it came from outside of our solar system? And why do you think that's significant? Yeah, this one came from um, what's called the Oort cloud. So this is a, a distant 
cloud of objects that we haven't observed directly, but infer, uh, Jan Oort first uh, inferred it's there due to the orbits of these very long period comets like Hale-Bopp was an infamous one from 25 years ago. Um, so we think it's out there. It's kind of under the gravitational influence of the sun. So it's kind of debatable whether um, you classify that as in the solar system or out of the solar system, but it's like a light year away. Hmm. So it is very, very far from the sun. These are very weakly bound bodies to the solar system. So this one, ZTF, as it's coming through, getting close to the sun, it's, it's jetting. So gas is being emitted from the nucleus. And those little small forces on this, you know, half mile sized body could be enough to send it away from the sun forever. So the last time we saw it was 50,000 years ago, but the little gases that we're seeing coming off could change its orbit so much that it could fly off into another solar system. And we've seen objects like that that were ejected from other planetary systems come into our solar system in the last few years. Hmm. Interesting stuff. We're talking to astrophysicist Dr. Ryan Ogliori from Washington University. And, and you and I have previously discussed the James Webb Space Telescope, which I find to be completely fascinating. But most of the photographs, at least I've seen from the Webb Telescope, have been pictures of the distant universe looking backwards in time to see you know, what's the first formations of, of celestial bodies after the Big Bang. And yet... I understand the Space Telescope told us something last week about our own solar system neighbor, Jupiter. What did it tell us? Yeah, so um, James Webb is like kind of optimized for doing this kind of distant observations. Um, doing solar system science is, is um, a new avenue for James Webb. It has to track, you know, solar system objects move much more quickly so whether James Webb can slew the telescope and track a solar system object is, is still something we're trying to figure out. Uh, I'm working with a new professor here at WashU to try to look at one of the moons of Saturn called CB with James Webb because we think it might be a captured, like we were just talking about, a captured interstellar object. Um, but just recently, an astronomer at Carnegie uh, used uh, other telescopes, uh, possibly James Webb too, but um, he was using mostly ground-based telescopes to find new moons around Jupiter. Um, the, and the thing with James Webb is that you get just a few hours on James Webb because everybody wants to use it so much. And to do things like find small new moons around Jupiter, sometimes it's better to use a, a ground-based telescope where you can track little bright objects in your frame that seem to be orbiting around a planet for a long time. So this is uh, Scott Shepard uh, that found 12 new moons around Jupiter, which put Jupiter as the new moon king in the solar system. <laughs> it passed Saturn, and they kind of go back and forth. You know, it depends how much patience you have um, to look um, to look at one planet and count all its moons. So they probably both have about 100, and this is these are relatively small moons that are pretty far, far from Jupiter. And unlike the big famous Galilean moons that you can see really uh, with binoculars from here in St. Louis, these small moons are probably captured asteroids um, that have kind of a different origin from the, the closer moons. To well, well, and that raises another question that I want to ask you about, because you talked about captured celestial objects as being moons. But what are other theories about how moons are formed? Yeah, so with um, with Jupiter, I'm thinking a lot about Jupiter and its moons lately, but it likely, Jupiter is so cool because it's like a little, 
planetary system in miniature in our own backyard. So you can think of Jupiter as a failed star, and it had its own little disk around it, just like our disk that we formed of around the sun. And out of that disk came the four largest satellites, it's Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. Those likely accreted from the same stuff that actually formed Jupiter. And Jupiter is likely the first planet to form in our solar system. So this material is really that primordial material in the solar system. And it made a huge diversity of worlds, like Io is this volcano world. Europa may have life. It may have a subsurface ocean with little microbes swimming in it. And Ganymede and Callisto, uh, Ganymede might have water. Callisto is made of ice. They're just a fascinating diversity mm-hmm. of worlds orbiting this, this kind of failed brown dwarf star in our, own, in our own solar system. So it's very cool. Well, and speaking of Europa, and I was going to ask you about that next, because our own moon, it circles the Earth, is is really just rock and dust. I mean, there's some hydrogen and other things there, but it, it doesn't seem to be uh, alive and percolating like some of these moons on Jupiter, or surrounding Jupiter, rather, like Europa. And Europa, of course, is covered with ice, but isn't there some thought processes here, Dr. Ogliori, that that Europa might actually be capable of sustaining life forms under that ice. Yeah, and that's because it it is locked in this um, resonance with the other Galilean moons, uh, and it's orbiting relatively close to Jupiter. So what happens on Europa in an extreme, extreme case on Io is that it's causing tides, just like the tides we have on Earth. But those tides on Europa are so strong that Europa is, you know, five times farther from the sun than we are. So it just there shouldn't be liquid water there. But those tides are heating the, the planet. The, I call the planet the moon, but uh, the moon enough to melt water, to melt the, the ice, to make liquid water and have it warm enough uh, so that you have the three, you know, the ingredients for life, which are heat, water, some kind of prebiotic compounds and that energy to create possibly uh, life. And you have four and a half billion years to do it. Um, so that's why we think Europa might have life. It, it's bathed in this horrible radiation environment, which is kind of a strike against it. But it's kind of earth, uh, surface ice shelf might protect it from outer radiation. So maybe we're sending two um, spacecraft, uh, Juice and Europa Clipper. Um, I saw Europa Clipper at JPL just a few weeks ago. So those two spacecraft are going out to Jupiter. They're going to launch the next couple of years and hopefully answer that question. And and correct me if I'm wrong, but on the Europa Clipper, isn't there going to be at least proposed uh, an experiment that would fire a probe that might actually either land on the ice or penetrate the ice on Europa? Yeah, uh, I think they were thinking of that a while ago. Um, that stuff is hard because um, the ice is relatively thick, and so the the concept I saw, I think I think I saw that too, where they're um, going to have some kind of radioactive source that could um, take a submarine on the surface and melt through that you know ten kilometer six miles thick layer of ice, and then melt through that and have wow. the submarine enter the water that way. Um, I think these things are like fabulously expensive. I think an easier Obviously. way. <laughs> might be so sometimes that water comes up through ice cracks on Europa's surface. 
Uh, so another way would be to sample those uh, water gotcha. geysers as they're being erupted. That's another way to do it. Right, Probably we, cheaper. Right. It's a lot cheaper. But can we just pause for a second and and just absorb the coolness of saying that someone has proposed a radioactive submarine to study the moon of Jupiter. I mean, that that just that's that sounds very, very cool. And uh, and that's why I love talking to you, Dr. Ryan Ogliori, because you you bring these astrophysics uh, concepts down to where we can talk about them. And I really appreciate your time this evening here on X. Great. Thanks for having me, Brad. I appreciate it. Great to talk to you. Yeah, that's why I love talking to Dr. Ogliori, because we can talk about these big ideas, and he explains it in such a way that even I can understand it. Hey, we've got more here on At Your Service, more coming up after the break. But the phone lines are open, and I love talking about anything. What's on your mind this evening? 314-436-7900. At Your Service, X. back to at your service brad young in with you this evening and i I wanted to get uh, i'm going to get matt back on on here because i want to ask you a question matt pajeski you're a 20 something guy when you watch tv i want you to think about the television content that you've consumed just this year which do you consume more of broadcast television or digital streaming Almost exclusively digital streaming. Yeah. Uh, recently, I, I moved out of my parents' house. My parents, now, they, they still have cable. So back then, last year, it was more cable television. Now that I'm with other 20-somethings who are my roommates, they uh, there's nothing on cable that interests them, and quite frankly, that interests me, to be honest. So uh, we are a strictly streaming household now with uh, me and my buddies. Okay, so, so when you're at home with your parents, and they're probably like my age— and yeah, they're old. They're, yeah, yeah they're, <laughs> thanks a lot. No, don't forget, I'll always be young. Oh, See, right. Brad Young, I'll always be young. So they're probably sitting around watching reruns of Columbo. Or, Old, older or, than that. Uh, or, we're talking Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. And the Virginian, wow. yeah. I, I haven't seen Gunsmoke in a very, very long time. So, uh, but but you, and I, and obviously you're not necessarily the exclusive representative of all people you're in your age group, but from this perspective, do most people your age primarily watch streaming? Yes. Okay. And the reason why I'm asking you this is, and I'm going to ask you if, you if you're shocked by this, but for the first time ever, researchers this week determined they took all, they polled all U.S. adults, people your age, people older than me, people in between. They polled all U.S. adults and found for the first time ever that 53% of Americans watch more streaming content than traditional broadcast television. Does that surprise you at all? Yes, because I actually thought that number would be higher. Really? Yeah. I, I think just streaming to me, I think has totally taken over. Um, just people are watching cable TV less and less these days. And maybe I, maybe I say that because I am part of the part of the population that is streaming only. So, sure. uh, but yeah, I actually thought that'd be a little higher. But of of the most watched TV shows in history, and this is why I think this this record will never be broken, it's either the Super Bowl or the last episode of MASH. Okay, right. those are the only two things. But from a cultural perspective, 
Do you think that it's it, it, it creates a, an inhibition or rather creates a barrier for people having a commonality of discussion and topics to talk about if everyone is watching their own streaming shows and there's really not anything that everyone in America is watching? Yeah, that, that's something I don't really I haven't really thought about. But back in the day, back in the day. You know, you would you would tune into everybody would tune into the same show at the mm-hmm. same time because that's when that's when that show aired. But now we've got so many choices where it's 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 hard to I guess find that commonality. I, I think ultimately though that the popular shows they get popular, people watch them. I watch the same shows as my friends because we have similar tastes. If 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 a show is popular, I'm going to end up watching it in some fashion. Um, so I don't know. It's 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 hard to explain. If if a show is popular for that, it's popular for a reason. Many people are going to are going to get drawn to that, whether it's streaming or on cable. See, there's a there's this sociology theory, sociological theory that says we're now more disconnected because we don't have the same commonality of programming that we watch. So, for example, the day after Super Bowl, everybody in America is saying, hey, did you watch the Super Bowl last night? Everyone says, oh, yeah, I like this. I like that. Everyone saw the Super Bowl. But when you move beyond the Super Bowl. There's really nothing in this country currently where everyone can say, I saw that. But see, I take the flip side. And just during one of the breaks, I I know I asked you, I I said, have you ever watched this show called Poker Face, which is done by Ryan Johnson, who did The Knives Out and The Glass Onion. And it's a show that he does for Peacock. And he said, no, 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 I've never seen that. But even though we lack this commonality of programming, don't you find opportunities now when you're talking to your friends to say, oh, have you watched XYZ show? And they may not have seen that. So even though you don't have the commonality, it does give you something to connect with by giving people ideas for new shows to watch. Sure, yeah. The show I'm watching right now is called The Last of Us on HBO. Uh, I've seen the first one. Yep, me too. That's, that's where I'm that's at all, right now. I've seen the first I'm, one. I'm, I'm behind, So, uh, but I would not have watched that if my friend hadn't hyped it up so much. He, he says it's great. He says it's similar to like The Walking Dead. There's zombies, kind of, and those are things that I like. So he recommended it to me, and now I'm watching it. So that's that's how it gets started, I guess. Yeah. So so even though I think that that I that I do uh, agree that that it, we lack this commonality, it gives us opportunities if we're inquisitive. It, it gives us opportunities to connect by giving people these new ideas because there's so much streaming content there's out too there. Much. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just mind boggling. When you have that much, it's almost harder to choose what to watch. You have too many options. You, you do. You don't know what to watch because you can watch anything. Right. Because the people go to McDonald's because they know what they want, they know what they like, and they know it's available. Right. Okay? And that used to be traditional television. You had three channels. Pick one. And it was easy to find what you liked and what you didn't like. And it was easy to connect with people who liked the same things. Now it's more difficult. But I, someone just texted in and said, I'm 45 and I am exclusively streaming no cable or dish. Now, I know from your perspective, 45 is still as old as dirt. No. But does that, does, does Matt, does that surprise you that here we have somebody 45 and they're exclusively streaming? Yeah, it does. I, I would have thought that age range, and I'm not like saying anything mean to that age range, but I would have thought that cable would, would, would still play a part in their, uh, their TV watching at 45. Well, as far as at the at the young household, we are predominantly streaming, and we watch the news live. We watch, and we watch Cardinal baseball when we're not listening to it on Camo X, and uh, but that's about the the extent of our cable watching. 
yeah. is maybe some shows on PBS, which make you roll your eyes. But uh, but the vast majority of uh, the TV stuff that we do watch is streaming. And so uh, you're right. This statistic that 53 percent are now watching more streaming than anything else. To me, that does seem low. Yeah. And the, the future of television, I read this fascinating article in CNBC last week where CNBC asked all of these executives, what's the future of broadcast television? And without a doubt, all the executives said, with the exception of sports, broadcast television will be dead in five years. And I'm thinking, five years? Uh, uh, How about like uh, maybe five months? Even you mentioned except sports. Correct. I don't even know if you can say that. Now there's there's rumors with Valley Sports potentially going bankrupt, uh, bankrupt, bankrupt. Local sports could be can now uh, there's a there's a possibility that local sports can be uh, designated exclusively for streaming. So that's that's not out of the question either that that sports could leave local television as well. Well, when Albert Pujols was going for his, you know, his record, right, to get uh, moving, I think, the number two slot for home runs, it was streamed on I think it was on Apple Plus. The game was streamed. It was. And I was actually uh, I was out of town. And we were staying at an Airbnb. My wife and I were out of town. And we, we streamed the game because I wanted to see Albert get that home run. And he, I think he hit two or three in that game. Yeah, he hit two. He hit two. There you go. He hit two in that game. But I thought, I've never seen live sports on a streaming platform. And you're saying now you think that's going to be the future. Yeah. I mean, they had uh, Apple TV had that Friday night baseball deal last season. Uh Thursday night football this past season was exclusively Amazon. Uh, St. Louis's Major League Soccer team is going to be exclusively Apple TV. It's it's just, this is just the beginning, and we can complain about it all we want, but it's just kind of the future. It's 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 gonna it's gonna happen whether we like it or not. Well, right now, of course, there's all of these different streaming platforms. Do you think that those are going to consolidate over time? Because right now there are so many choices that it becomes almost mind-boggling to try to find the programming you want because of too many choices. I think so, yeah. And you've got, you've got so many streaming services now, it's like you're almost paying as much as you were paying for cable because you're paying for six or seven different streaming services. You're not even saving all that much money anymore. Nope. So uh, I could definitely see some consolidation in the future, too, of, of all the streaming services. Yeah, and to me, that follows a pattern, and I don't know that you'll remember this at all, but but like in the 90s, there was there were... Uh, a whole bunch of cellular phone companies. There were regional cellular phone companies. And over the course of about a 10-year time frame, all of those regional phone companies got bought up by AT&T, Verizon, and Sprint. And so what was this amalgamation of various stations, or I mean various uh, uh, cellular networks, all became consolidated. In the 1940s, there were there were a bunch of different TV networks. They all got consolidated. So I do think that consolidation is the future of streaming. I just hope that some of the content that we have, because some of the content on streaming now is amazing. I hope that level of quality stays the same because you can't match the quality of stuff on streaming today on broadcast television. No, you can't. 
And I, what I hope doesn't happen is that they start throwing the commercials back into streaming because that'll totally defeat the purpose of why we pay for streaming. I yeah. think is to get rid of those commercials is, uh, on, on TV is, uh, is a big part of uh, why we love streaming so much, I think. Yeah, I don't, I don't mind commercials, but if I'm paying for a product, I, I don't want to pay for it and yeah. watch the commercials. Exactly. And, and speaking of commercials, we're going to have to take one now. But listen, as I always tell people when they say, oh, Brad, I heard you on Camo X, I tell them always the same thing. I promise you it was worth everything you paid to hear me. So uh, now you're going to pay for hearing me on Campbell X. We're going to take a confiscatorily high commercial break just to pay Matt Pajeski's salary. But there's more to come next on At Your Service. Work or play, KMOX is right there with you. We go where you go. Cruising into the last segment here on X this evening. Thanks for sticking around with us. One of the cases at the Supreme Court that I've been following very closely, and I try to follow most of the cases at the Supreme Court, except most of the regulatory cases. I kind of ignore those. But uh, but one of the cases I've been following closely is this case. It's called Students for Fair Admission versus Harvard and Students for Fair Admissions versus University of North Carolina. And if you recall these two cases, they're joined together, uh, administratively consolidated. But the point is the same, and that is both universities use race when it comes to college admissions. The universities say we want X number of people in this minority group to be a part of our campus. So we're going to use race as a basis to uh, determine who gets in and who doesn't get in. And the reason why these two cases are at the Supreme Court is because some Asian students were excluded from both universities. And the Asian students were excluded, even though their grades were fine, their grades were more than fine, they met all of the academic criteria to get into both universities. And if race were not a factor, those Asian students would have been admitted. However, The university said, we have too many Asians at our universities, and so we're going to exclude you in order to allow others from different minorities to come to our university. And so they challenged it, and the plaintiffs lost in the underlying cases, and and now it's up at at the Supreme Court. Oral arguments were last October, and we expect a decision this spring. I think we'll have a decision in either March or April on this case. But ahead of this case, and the reason why I'm bringing it up now, is that Reuters did a nationwide poll. Reuters did a poll, and the poll was this. Should ethnicity be considered in any way in college admissions? That was the question. And what's interesting is 62% of Americans agreed that race and ethnicity should have no bearing, should not be considered in any way in terms of college admissions, 62%. Now, if you watched the coverage, in fact, I think it's interesting, even in this Reuters analysis of their own poll, they labeled the current Supreme Court as a conservative-leaning Supreme Court. Why do I mention that? Well, I see this a lot 
as I read articles about the Supreme Court, about legal issues, about oral arguments and cases that are being argued at the Supreme Court. And most, most mainstream media will call the Supreme Court conservative-leaning. And while I would agree with that analysis, I do agree that it is a conservative-leaning Supreme Court. But here's what jumps out at me. Have you ever heard courts in years past referred to as liberal-leaning? Have you ever heard that? And, of course, the answer is no. There is no mainstream media, print or broadcast, that has ever, with the exception of Fox News, okay, I'll give you that as an exception, but with that notable exception, no other so-called mainstream media ever has labeled the Supreme Court as being as being left-leaning. So from their perspective, a left-leaning Supreme Court is just the Supreme Court. We don't characterize it as left-leaning. It's just the Supreme Court. But if it happens to be right-leaning or conservative-leaning, then we have to put a label on it. And I think that that is a it's fascinating in the absence of a label when the Supreme Court leans far to the left. And it has. Listen, I've studied the Supreme Court in law school and since then. And there have been many decades in this country where the Supreme Court has been extremely liberal, particularly in the 60s and the 70s. And yet no one ever labels that as a left-leaning court. But I digress. Going back to this particular issue, I find it fascinating that 62% of Americans think that race and ethnicity should not be considered at all. But yet when the Supreme Court renders its decision, and I I give you a 98% chance that the Supreme Court's going to strike down these college admission practices as being a violation of not only the Constitution, but also federal law. When they do that, the mainstream media will characterize this decision as a conservative decision. But 62% of Americans aren't conservative. We know that to be a fact. So just because a person believes that race and ethnicity should have no factor in college admissions doesn't mean that that person is conservative. And yet the mainstream media will label it as such. And yet when we, when we talk about ethnicity and race in admissions, this is a part of the equation that is always left out of the discussion, and that's this. If you are going to create an admissions policy that favors one ethnicity or one racial group, if you're going to do that, it by definition is at the exclusion of another group. And let me give you an example. The American Bar Association that, that gives the approval of all law schools in this country, the American Bar Association has stated publicly that it will soon require law schools to have professors that match the same ethnic backgrounds as the communities in which they teach. Now, that sounds very nice. That sounds very noble. It sounds like a, uh, something that should be applauded. But let me give you a quick example. When I was in law school in the 1980s and the early 1990s, about 30% of my professors were Jewish, 30%. And if there wasn't 30% of the Jewish community in the, in the, in the uh, community at large. So if you're going to follow those rules, that means you have to go to 29% of virtually all of those Jewish professors and say you're fired, not because you're doing a bad job, but because you are Jewish. 
How is that not discrimination? So bringing that back to this poll, 62% of Americans realize that if you use ethnicity as a basis for admission, you're by definition discriminating against someone on the basis of race, and that's inherently wrong. Brad Young with you this evening on At Your Service. Stick around. The Best of Dave Glover Show coming up next on X. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. It's that time of year. Cash the ticket. Jim Costa with Mike Valeni. We shift the focus from football to college hoops, getting us ready for the tournament where we're going to break down all the matchups and have an eye on some future plays too. Search Cash the Ticket on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.